Today we are sitting down with Faye Sahai and talking about her journey as an investor in digital wellness and mental health technology startups. She is the managing partner of Telocity Ventures and is going to share with us some of her brain health tech knowledge, techie techie investor knowledge, and adventures. Here is my conversation with Faye Sahai. You started off your career actually in banking, and then you went a bunch of other ways. Um, you went into the healthcare system, working with, for example, Kaiser Permanente, AIG, and Blue Cross. Blue Shield? Blue Cross? I get them confused. <laughs> Blue Shield. Blue Shield, yeah. Yeah, in some states, it's the same. It's combined in California. It's separate. Yeah, well, this is okay. <laughs> anyway, and then you kind of brought the two together, this healthcare background and the finance background, and you created Telocity Ventures, which is a, a venture capital firm that invests in mental health um, tech startups, specifically focusing on the youth side of this, youth mental health. That was with her, our first one. Oh. And so now we actually go age agnostic and through the whole care continuum. Okay. So now it's the whole thing. Okay. I'm already jumbling this up from the beginning. That's amazing. Um, no, no. I mean, that is, that is true. Our first set of investments were all targeted towards youth because yeah. it takes 11 years from the onset of your disease to get treatment. And half of the mental illness starts at the age of, in your teenage years. So we're saying, how can we disrupt that yeah. from that standpoint um, and tackle it straight on? And then you, you decided to kind of open it up wider why, yeah. did, why did you decide that? Because sadly enough, it's starting earlier than 10 and, and it's and lasting until people pass away. And, 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 you know, there is a whole onset of senior loneliness and depression yeah. um, as well. So um, with COVID too, it just really kind of sparked of like, you have to deal with the whole family unit. Right. Yeah. You might have someone that has mental health, but some of it is genetic. Right. So you have to really look at, you know, your caring adult around you, your parent might be an uncle, aunt, you know, yeah. and um, we really feel like you need to kind of address kind of the system um, from that. So we really wanted to expand across all ages and across the whole care continuum because we were just dealing from prevention to mild, moderate. Yeah. But the chronic, severe um suicidality has all been increasing yeah so can you talk about the general sort of state of affairs right now like uh uh we hear this sort of there's this kind of a mental health crisis that uh it's uh things are increasing depression suicide anxiety all kinds of uh, mental health disorders but you're, you're you're right there on the front lines of it so um yeah tell us about sort of what's the state of affairs you know now it's, it's 2024 <laughs> yeah so one billion individuals are suffering with mental illness globally. And it's one in five um, adults in the U.S. Uh, from that standpoint uh, have, have or will have experienced a mental health condition. And what, what we're seeing, though, too, is that there's a whole range of people that, you know, that don't get not able to or do not get treatment. And that's like half, more than half, 55 to 60% of adults and youth with mental illness do not receive treatment. It could be due to access, unwillingness, not knowing where to go um, from that standpoint. So we find a whole range. And then even from that, we have to really look at the cultural ways of, um, of being. So Asians, and this is it's personal to me um, from that standpoint. My my father suffering years of depression, and as a doctor, that only twenty three percent of Asian adults will seek medical help because what happens is it's not only reflected on you; it's reflected on your family if you have mental illness, right? So then it's just not culturally accepted from that. Um, it's a shame to the point when my dad had to have emergency open heart surgery, he went cold turkey on his antidepressants rather than telling his surgeon he's on antidepressants. And he's a doctor. He knows 
how bad that is. <laughs> but, you know, it was the shame was so was greater than the risk of his life. So. Yeah, that's an, I, I hadn't thought about that. The, the, the cultural difficulties of, of, of being Asian, especially the Asian parent or the male. Yeah. Um, how do you even get around that? I, I didn't expect to talk about this topic, but um, I mean, hmm. Yeah. How do you, how do you fix that? How do you, how do you, how do you help people like your dad? <laughs> no, it, it is. It, um, I think what was really interesting um, is there had actually been several campaigns to reduce the stigma of mental health. So you definitely say it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. Um, actually a very popular Korean film, um, uh, you know, kind of docuseries from that standpoint. So I think it is communicating that, um, knowing that there are kind of resources from it. Um, really interesting from the doctor standpoint, we actually invested in a company that helps healthcare providers with their mental health. And part of that was being anonymous. So even when they're talking in their, in their chat rooms or virtual rooms, just like this, their voice will be anonymized. They'll be an avatar so that they feel very protected and that they'll be talking with other peer groups and other healthcare providers because they understand the stresses of actually taking care of someone's life um, from that. And they actually found it very helpful, but they had to go through that being anonymous and feeling very safe. So I think culturally we have to deal with kind of the uniqueness, whether it's your profession or, you know, your upbringing, your background, uh, your race from that standpoint. And so we've been seeing thousands of kind of different startups really trying to address unique, whether it's bipolar, eating disorder, cultural background, age group uh, from that. It's really kind of unique. It seems like like looking at like a lot of uh, the companies that you've invested in, a common thread between them seems to be that they yeah, they're, they're each providing a different um, product, but the ultimate product is is connection. It's connection with other people, is with um, people who can help them, people their own age, just someone to talk to. Connection, not feeling alone, and not feeling like no one's listening to you or no one sees you, but um, just giving you that one or two or three or a group of people to. Um, to be there for you. And that also make, gets me thinking that it seems like a lot of these mental health um, disorders or whatever, they might be rooted in this, this isolation, this, this feeling of aloneness um, that maybe spirals out into something bigger, a, a bigger mental illness. But it seems like that connection, that, that desire for connection, that need for human connection and safety and social support is kind of at the root of all of this. It definitely is like one, one big driver. Um, yeah. You know, this next generation is known as the loneliest generation where they're the least likely to say they have a best friend, someone that they can turn to when they're upset. So to your point, Michael, we are, we are human beings that are, <laughs> it's part of our DNA to have that sense of connection, sense of community. Um, and so a, a lot of them do. And part of it is that trust. And um, what we find is if people don't trust, and that kind of comes to some of the cultural um, racial system, if they don't trust the healthcare system, if they don't trust their doctor, or if they don't trust that those medicines are going to help them with their treatment, they won't, it won't work. They won't take it. They won't do it. They will go from that. Um, and so having that connection with a trusted person or building that relationship is so important from that standpoint. And we've been looking at, as I mentioned, thousands of companies, and we've really been looking for the evidence, you know, of does it really help improve someone's mental health and well-being? And that's very important for us as we're kind of investing, because there is a lot of slick PowerPoints and clickable demos and things like that. But is it really helping um, someone? And where is that evidence uh, from that standpoint? And then what's been interesting is you could have the best clinically evidence-driven thing, but if people aren't engaged with it, if they don't stick it out, if they don't like it, then there's also that. It has to, it has to have that balance of clinical evidence, but engaging, enablement, they have to be able to stick it out, have the outcomes from that standpoint and the traction in the market. 
and the appeal. We especially found that with um, young people, right? It has to, you know, have that click, that spark, or else they just click off of it. And with our seniors, it has to be so easy and not technically challenging that they can engage with it. And that's what's been kind of amazing with Gen I, Gen AI, and the voice is that it can be engaging uh, from that standpoint. And, and it can be personalized. It can, it's now starting to show empathy. It can hear from your voice, your eyes, um, the speed of your language and tone of like, how are you doing day to day? Sounds like you're pretty tired uh, from that standpoint. Is everything okay? Uh, and so now you have these chatbots that are really interesting and intriguing. Um, we invested in Maslow AI, which really has this whole digital empathetic um, companion, yeah. which is now kind of a platform to kind of be able to offer that. It's interesting what you're doing because we we got this smartphone a decade or so ago, and everyone thinks of this thing as oh, it's it's disconnecting us, it's causing mental health problems. It's 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 the bad guy, um, you know, social media and cyberbullying and on and on all this stuff, and yeah, that that perhaps is is true. The device itself is perhaps um, yeah, causing certain problems. But what you're doing is you're using the same device, mostly the smartphone. It sounds like, but you're using it to help heal people and uh, connect them with help and with each other, with AI, with with uh, machines. <laughs> This is great. This is great. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you have a really interesting point, and there's definitely a lot of kind of research and thoughts from that. Part of it is technology is here to stay, unless you want to go in a cave somewhere and be, you know, off off the net. Um, But we said 80% of adults want to incorporate technology into their mental health routine. Um, young people are saying you need to be on mobile if you want me to engage. So part of it is in kind of the recognition of what is the the value of technology and how can we use it to help support our our well-being? Uh, A lot of studies have found, right, if the more active you're with technology and engaging in a a positive manner, um, then it's to your benefit. If you become the passive person in your technology, like we call it doom scrolling, right? Like you're just scrolling through all these videos and chats and looking at how everyone else's life is better than yours. And you're doing this social comparison. You're feeling alone. Everyone else has friends. I don't have friends. You're, you're kind of going down this rabbit hole that then of like kind of depression, sad music, we call them sad boy hours and, and going from that it can, it can be quite negative. So how do we use a technology to have it be positive from that? You know, nudging you into a positive direction, seeing how you're doing, showing you the progress you have, inspiring you to have your own goals and setting them and supporting you in your goals. So, um, you, you know, it is a valid point. So we know technology is here to stay. How can we use it for our well-being? Yeah, it sounds like our relationship with technology is a happy one, a healthy one. The more autonomous we feel, we feel like, oh, I'm I'm choosing this, I'm doing this, um, I'm deliberately going here, um, doing this or that. This is my life. It's not technology stealing my soul away. <laughs> yeah, you you mentioned that some of the companies um, they might have flashy presentations and this and that, but uh, some of them aren't actually helping people and some of them are what what are some trends you've noticed in terms of what kinds of applications people do actually like using and, and it, it is helping them and there's other ones that they might look kind of shiny on the outside and exciting and you might invest in them but then you're like oh actually um no this isn't really helping anything and or it's just not people aren't using it yes again now we're finding um so we invested in Daybreak Health all the way like from pre-seed and um, they were, were focusing on, on young people from that all the way from high school, you know, something that was kind of engaging and where it was going. And as they were looking at it, um, they were looking at a virtual platform. You could have telehealth and can kind of consult um, with your doctor. You could also go all the way to 
tell us psychiatry from that with medications and uh, if you're also having problems or side effects from that, being able to engage. And because what we're finding in, in, you know, across our, our nation is there's not enough providers and to be able to actually have access and then to understand me uh, from that standpoint. And then to be able to work with the parents to have them a sense of agency and understanding what their, their young, you know, their child's going through. And so it actually has grown quite rapidly through schools because you usually have only one counselor for thousands of students. And the demand was overwhelming. We did focus groups with principals and teachers and they're like, I've been in this profession for 20, 30 years. And this is the first time it's not about, you know, food fights in the hallways and, you know, it's about children coming in and saying, I can't deal with it anymore. I'm suicidal. And so we find that the schools are seeing kind of the brunt of it. All the um, kids are coming in. And so we were saying, you know, we really need to address this and, and give schools some viable options. So we are really happy to invest in Daybreak. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the causes for why it seems there's an uptick in all these mental health problems, not just for the young people, but for, for everybody, especially in, in countries like the United States, but um, yeah, globally. Yes. Um, so there's one is there's a reduced stigma. So people might have had mental health problems before, but didn't talk about them or ashamed or try to hide it. So there, there is a, a more increase of reporting. I think we were under reporting before. Mm. I think COVID with the isolation, to your point, Michael, that you said, we are social beings. And then when we had to isolate, you know, due to health concerns, it was very challenging uh, for us. And it, it brought, you know, brought out some of that loneliness. Yeah. From that standpoint, we've seen a lot of anxiety and depression, um, especially in our, some of our young people, too. But um, what's happening in the world with the wars going on, with climate change. So what was before is that you were just isolated and kind of, you know, from news reels and everything. You only knew what was going on in your town, your city, your state. Now with the Internet, we know what's happening across the world in a nanosecond. And and the way our news works and the AI and the algorithm, it's all geared towards the most eyeballs. And the way our brains work, right, is we're geared towards like fear or fascination, sensationally, you know, short words, highlights, you know, <laughs> what's happening in here, right? And so we tend to gravitate towards a negative because we want to survive, right? Like, and so, so then it's just, just like this vicious cycle. Right. So if you clicked on that link about someone passing away or the doom of, you know, climate change, or now the algorithm's going to feed you more of that. Oh, it's even worse. Even if you just pause for a second, you kind of just le linger on it and it see it knows you're looking. It's like, ah, he didn't click, but he he, he kind of likes it. We're going to feed him more. I'm like, come on, come on. I don't like it. I'm just kind of <laughs> curious. Uh, I, yeah, I hate it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so... I, I think from that, you know, and it's multiple ones. We also know like our environment mm -hmm. and what we're eating yeah. and the chemicals we're eating, you know. I know we were just talking about earlier, um, we've been, you know, really collaborating with the researchers and universities and other organizations and the Buzukis are amazing and in, in really investing in the effect of our nutrition or metabolic health on our mind. And what we eat. So they have actually specifically seen like with the keto diet and exercise for people that are bipolar, it's actually having a really significant effect. Yeah. Reducing their suicidal tendencies, um, reducing their medications and how from that, because they're kind of researching the analysis that our brains were having so much sugar and carbs in our diet that for some people's brains, it takes them a little off kilter and that they need more a keto balanced diet for their, for the brain chemistry to work. So it's very intriguing. We're also finding that with sleep and um, that if you're not sleeping enough, then it can tend to, you know, 
for some people that are you know, depressed or anxiety, it tends to increase it because you're not giving your brain enough time to recover. That's awesome because, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about like my brother and other people I know who, um, who have some of these um, mental health conditions. Um, he'll probably get mad at me for even saying that because my point I'm coming with is, um, is this desire for, this strong desire for autonomy and control a lot of times for, for a lot of these um, people. So when you try to, yeah, people know, okay, the medications are, are what's going to solve the problem, but <laughs> you're trying to give medication to the very people who don't want medication a lot of time. So while, yeah, this is, this is a great solution, if we can find some alternative solutions like through behavior, sleep, uh, sunlight, uh, nutrition and stuff to where the person feels like they're actually choosing it and they're in control and they, they trust um, these protocols and whatnot. Yeah, they might may or may not be as powerful as the pharmaceuticals. I don't know, but it seems to be a step in the right direction. Um, that, that would be great. Uh, and if we can have some uh, applications, some technologies that also give people this feeling of autonomy, um, that they're in control of them, their life and their health, um, I think that that's where we have to go. We have to think about from their perspective and um, you can't just shove pharmaceuticals down their throat all the time, even though they might need them. Yeah. No, Michael, you have a really good point too. And there's, I think there's that of choice and personalization and preferences. So important, right. For them to be um, willing, able, and for it to be actually effective. Right. Um, We've talked to people that have tried 20 or 30 meds, from that standpoint. So we've been looking at startups to say, what is the best treatment for this individual? Um, it might be that combination of food, sleep, exercise, medication. It might be there's some really interesting things using virtual reality. Submersion into kind of an environments for them to kind of go into that situation that might cause them anxious, like flying, example, right? Like maybe they're just so fearful of flying, they break down and then you stay in their house. They never go anywhere because they're just like, I, I can't deal with open spaces, people flying. And so they use virtual reality to actually have them go in a safe immersion process uh, from that. And it's actually shown to be effective, right? Because they can control it. Like I'm ready to stop it but then they can experience it and get their mind over of like, Oh, I'm okay. I didn't die. I, the plane landed safely. I was in control. And so that they actually are training their mind and their thoughts and their feelings of like, Oh, when I'm getting anxious, like deep breathe. Yeah. So there's some really interesting things also with music. We've seen that with Parkinson's and um, Alzheimer's and like how music can kind of settle uh, the mind, get it on, you know, so your point there's so many different um possibilities and treatments coming out yeah well since you already meant you mentioned vr and ar i wanted to actually ask you about this um as well because it's another kind of thing i'm a, a bit obsessed with um yeah i guess currently you haven't really uh it doesn't seem you've been investing in uh, in vr ar spatial computing whatever you want to call it um but what new pos you mentioned one um with the exposure therapy um, what new possibilities open up for preventing or treating or helping with mental health when we have these VR, AR devices that, that you, we just could not do with the smartphone? And maybe it's not possible yet, but it's, it's coming. Uh, it might take uh, more computing power or more this or that, but, you know, yeah, what do you have in mind? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the exposure therapy, I mentioned one, we you know, we actually would like to um, invest and we've seen several uh, VR um, startups and it's really intriguing for us. So we've been really looking at it and, and, and the possibility. Some actually have been working with um, autism, ADHD, um, ADD, as far as like attention mm. and um emotional affect yeah. and teaching kind of like kind of a skill-based kind of learning right through VR, through immersion and trying kind of cues and going through that. Um, so we've looked at that. We've also looked at ones that kind of, kind of tap into your um, brain as well. Right. So being able to control your attention stand, being able to control the ball or the game from that through your minds and thought, right. So that you're focused 
and making the ball rise and fall, really using that sense of focus and attention. So really then doing neural with VR and gamifying it to to do brain training uh, from that standpoint. So there's some really interesting things in that area, we we find that experience kind of engaging. I think the challenge is having kind of the hardware that was quite expensive, having that be out, um, having kind of the training behind it, exposure and, and things like that. But I think the price points, the the, um, the quality of VR sets are really getting um, higher and higher in the quality. Uh, before, people would complain of like headaches or dizziness, and that's you know, starting to go away uh, from that standpoint. So, yeah, and connected to these VR AR headsets are other technologies that are are, are elsewhere as well, like in self driving cars and uh, etc. But these uh, these sensors that are getting better and better. Now we have um, eye tracking. We have we're going to have pupil dilation tracking and lots of other kinds of sensors. Yeah, that that also opens, opens up a bunch of new possibilities. Um, that's exciting as well. Yeah, sensors. <laughs> so your parents are doctors. Your parents are both doctors, right? And then you kind of like, like most kids, it kind of went the opposite direction. You went to finance, which is, you know, I'm sure they're proud of you. Um, now that you're kind of back, I guess you've been in the healthcare field for like 25, 30 years or something. Um, so yeah. Um, what what are your parents' um, sort of thoughts on on what you're doing? Are they, are they proud of you? I know you, you must be proud of yourself. Um, yeah, how how how, are you, how do your parents uh, feel about all this now? Are they like, yay, good job? Or are they still just the parents like, you're not good enough? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're never um, good enough. <laughs> you know, um, no, my parents are because um, I'm involved in healthcare, something they can understand yeah. from that. And, um, you know, it's so interesting, right? Like, because we're immigrants from Thailand and, uh, you know, when we're, I was first graduating from college. I had different job offers, right? You know, banking in San Francisco or, um, you know, I was going to do marketing and, you know, the Northwest and big consumer product company. And they're like, marketing? Like, what? <laughs> it's just like, you're going banking. Um, so, so, so from that, for something yeah. they understood and, and um, could, could relate to. And, but then when, for me, I grew up in healthcare. You know, I, I worked in their offices. I helped support them in their private practices. And but you know, as a as a, a teen, you're like, I want to not do what my parents are doing, right? So I'm right into banking. Yeah, you feel like a loser. I'm doing. I'm just doing what they told me. This isn't my life. It goes back to the whole autonomy thing, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then, but healthcare, I you know, I, I really came back to it, um, and it's because you were helping people. For me, it kind of was both for the, you know, both for my heart and mind. Uh, it really kind of built, blended of being able to use my analytic skills, you know, my capabilities, as well as knowing that I'm, I'm helping someone's life from that standpoint. And so now we've touched millions of lives with companies we've invested in. And, um, you know, so we, you know, from that standpoint, it's been um, amazing. So, yeah. Had you become a doctor, you would have helped. um thousands of people maybe i don't know i mean sorry your dad sorry doctors out there you're help- millions <laughs> you're helping millions i don't know um but yeah there's, there's a sort of cap yeah. on how many people you can you can help um but with your what you're doing i'm potentially um especially if, if some of these companies really start taking off i mean you could be helping um billions of people's lives um and for a fraction of the cost and, and also um people who just couldn't have access to it otherwise they just wouldn't have um wouldn't have had it. and also creators people making companies that, that wouldn't have made a company had there not been um people like you because also you know i know you've mentioned this on other other interviews and stuff but you are uh, a female you are from thailand and uh, a lot of the uh, investors out there are these white men um yeah there's a, there's a value to having having founders who are from diverse backgrounds, having investors who are from diverse backgrounds, and even having uh, members on your team. Um, so if, if you're making a company, um, I was talking to another, um, I did another interview with this guy named uh, Dylan Fox. He talks about XR accessibility. And he told me, if you're making your XR application, make sure you get people, you know, differently able, disabled folks in there early on. Um, that's my best, my best advice for you if you want to make a successful product. Wow. 
Um, yeah, so what are the values of what new possibilities open up for a company or um, for things we can make when we bring in more women or more people from different uh, backgrounds? Um, you know, I'm definitely passionate about this, Michael. You kind of hit a, I know. Um, a soft spot for <laughs> me uh, uh, from that standpoint. Um, it's because, you know, we're single digits of women in venture capital. And then you put it as person of color and then it gets even smaller uh, from that standpoint. And um, with people with diverse backgrounds are more likely, you know, and for women for three times more likely to invest in a diverse founder. And we, when we look at our founders um, out there, you know, our diverse founders are getting single digits of the VC dollars. Yeah. And so you're just like, hmm. Mm-hmm. But we've also found that like women founders and, and people of color sometimes have, they're more effective in using the dollars they get because they get so few, right? So they're, <laughs> you know, so the ones that actually do quite well uh, from that standpoint. So kind of performance is, sh- is showing from that because um, they had to fight so hard to get the money uh, from that. So they're one of the more stronger from that. So, you know, for me, I've been encouraging more diversity. Uh, not only in the VCs, uh, in the founders, uh, but also the limited partners that are investing in um, venture capital. Um, just educating too, because we're definitely seeing a lot more diversity in angel investors, which is wonderful. I think that's great. You know, an angel investor investing in like a really early stage startup in one company and helping mentor. And what I've been advising them too is, um, like for ours, we were trying to really encourage it. So we lowered our threshold to encourage um, accredited investors and individuals um, to actually invest. Um, because now you're not only investing in that one really early stage, which has very like, you know, it tends to be a little bit riskier, right? Because it's one in blank uh, of it being successful. But now you're investing in a portfolio of companies, across the like earlier and a little bit later stage companies, you have more likely chance for it to have a return uh, from that standpoint. So I, I really think um, diversity really has kind of shown some um, business value and return for us. It is something that we track. You know, half our portfolio is, uh, you know, women led, just reflective of our population. You know, half of them are, you know, more than half are, are a person of color. We also look at the demographic diversity as well. You know, I know I'm based in Silicon Valley, you know, a lot of startups here, but, you know, we actually look and say, we want to make sure that we're, investing beyond the hubs of New York and, you know, Boston and uh, and San Francisco. So we actually track, like, there are some amazing things happening all around our country. Um, And in Canada, we're we're investing in in both countries as well um, that are, you know, effective, useful, engaging. So we we actually track those metrics in addition to, like, of course, the financial return and everything like that. Yeah. This is kind of hard to imagine because you know when you were when you were in high school you didn't have a, didn't have a smartphone. I mean I didn't have a smartphone, um, but if you can go back to your high school self and and take some of these um, these apps and things that you've invested in and you, you could have one of those, a few of them. Um, I know you can't pick your children right now, but um, yeah, if you if you can kind of give some of these tools. Maybe not even the ones you've invested in, other existing tools that exist now that didn't exist back then. What are some that you would like, ooh, I wish I had that. I, I would have really benefited from that. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. I would. Um, I think there's, so for example, we invested in Neolith that kind of uses a neuroscience. Um, so it gives you like an online like assessment that you can use in the privacy of like your room and kind of assess how you're doing and then uh, kind of setting goals from that. And it, it's giving tools based on your assessment of these are things that would help say yeah. from that. And then, but then it gives you like the calendar remind, right? Like, cause for me, like my calendar is my, <laughs> right? like, right? so it actually helps slot them in to your calendar to kind of actually remind you to do that kind of shows you your progress from that standpoint. Yeah. 
than all clinically based and evidence based. But what I also like about them is they also have content. It's not just adults talking to young people and saying, hey, they actually have young people talking to young people, content driven from young people like, you know, Michael's podcast saying, hey, you know, I'm going through challenging times as well. And how are you feeling from that? This is what I found helpful, right? Like, so they have youth creating content for youth, which I think is really fun because I think I would have gravitated from that, right? Like sometimes you're, you know, to be a little rebellious. I don't want to hear another talking adult head because I've heard it in school. (laughs) I want to hear from my peers. I want to see what's going from that standpoint. So that's been, um, you know, some tool like that, that, will help me from where I'm at and what I need and assess from what I need versus what someone else thinks I need. So. Yeah. I'm also curious, you had this kind of like long kind of like build up through your career going, going into banking and then going into um, healthcare and, and consulting and, and, and uh, the, the nonprofits and all these different directions. And along the way, you must've ex- had these sort of experiences, these memories like, Wow. Um, that you didn't realize at the time, um, but now you looking back, you're like, wow, that was a um, sort of a mental health episode or experience or whatever that that I always remembered. And these memories might have piled up and and ultimately been part of what led you to decide to go in this direction of of, of mental health. Um, what are some of those? You mentioned your father with his depression that uh, wasn't getting treated and um, eventually it, it had to, I guess. What are some of the other kind of um, big, big memories in that album of memories that led to the, that might've led to this? Yeah. Um, definitely. There's, um, you know, memories of like someone I went to high school with, um, and she was going to like another college nearby me. But I remember um, getting the news that she committed suicide. And I'm just like, she was just a freshman in college. And, <clears throat> and why she seemed happy. And, and um, you know, it, it caused me to kind of look into kind of suicidality and really understand. And, and um, it was interesting because you know, when someone is, you know, planning to do suicide, they actually get happier at that end, right? They start giving gifts and they're really happy because they have found a a solution to escape their depression. And, um, you know, and that was counterintuitive to what I, you know, like they tell you to look for the signs, but if they're happier than they normally, like, how would you know? Right. Like, so it was really interesting to kind of look at that. And then, and then, you know, that, in the U.S. right now, the number two killer of all our young people right now is suicide. And that's heartbreaking, heartbreaking for me. So it just said, then having a, another friend, you know, her son, only 10 years old for her um, <clears throat> to realize he hung himself from his bunk bed, you know, like just heartbreaking at 10 years old, right? Like just, you know, um, so that these incidents of, uh, you know, we're going suicide, the depression, the anxiety um, really increasing does really hit home for me um, from that. And part of the reason I never became a doctor like my parents is, as you can tell, I get emotion, you know, like I'm so um, empathetic, sympathetic. So then when people are describing their pain to me, because I used to work in my parents' offices, I would actually feel the pain and feel so like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, like, how can I do to help you? But it would take so much out of me that I'm like, I can't, I can't go on that side of medicine. I need to be able to help people, but not, you know, like, you know, absorb all their pain uh, from that standpoint. So finally, I figured out a way to help, um, help a lot of people. Uh, that is healthy for me too, as well. So, yeah. so maybe, maybe now you're, you're, yeah, you, you didn't become a doctor, and now you're like, no more podcasts. I'm never going on a podcast anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm enjoying our conversation. This is actually a really nice uh, conversation because I, I, I came in thinking I have to be. I'm looking at your profile. Oh, you're this uh, investor. Duh, 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 duh. I feel like I have to 
they like to hold formal and ask these questions with a certain kind of voice. Um, don't get too sloppy. And 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 now uh, from the beginning, you just I, I just felt really relaxed with you. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. We're just talking. This is nice. Um, even the podcast, I think for me, is sort of a way from like a weird kind of therapy for me to learn how to communicate with other people and uh, I don't know, overcome these fears of um, uh, being accepted and accepted by people that you admire and, and learning from them and connecting with them and making friends. And um, so there's always this kind of anxiety of you know, trying to impress a little bit. And uh, yeah, talking to you, I, I, I don't feel a lot of that pressure now. I feel like I felt that kind of um, kindness and acceptance from the beginning. So um, this is uh, this is nice for me. I'm, I'm probably going to listen to this. I'm like, wow, that was not an interview. What did you just do? Uh, but it's, an, it's a nice conversation. I'm, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> no, Michael. I'm, well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that, you know, and I was looking through your podcast and so many interesting topics that you're doing um, from that and really sharing with the world, which I think is wonderful, um, kind of insights from all around the world, you know, and your dedication for you to be up in the middle of night from Asia <laughs> with me. Thank you so much. So now I'm from Asia. You were from Asia. Now I'm from Asia. <laughs> when, when my parents, when my, um, when my parents like introduce me to someone, they'll be like, Oh, here's Michael. He's my son from Japan. I'm like, mm, no, I'm not your son from Japan. <laughs> is that, is that supposed to be, what does that mean? Is that impressive? What, 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 what does it mean? Um, but yeah, your parent, parents, uh, do your, do your parents do anything like that? They're like, Oh, this is my, uh, how, how do they introduce you? <laughs> do they, do they do that? Here's my daughter. She's, she's, uh, I don't know. What, what is she? What is she? <laughs> yeah. They, you know, it, it, definitely interesting. they're like, well, she's in healthcare. Don't quite understand everything she does. Cause she's not direct care, uh, for them. And now they're both going through dementia. So it's, um, so I'm the, just their daughter. That's what they can remember from that standpoint. Um, so, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah. So I've been getting into like a lot of the neuroscience and what we're learning about the brain. Trying to figure out dementia, like what's going on with it. Yeah. Dementia, Alzheimer's, um, you know, and it's just increasing so significantly. And like how do what unlocks and locks the brain. Uh, from that standpoint, um, and, you know, for mental illness and mental health. So, you know, so it's, it's definitely been interesting, uh, from that standpoint too, but having them both have, um, both. dementia now is, uh, is challenging, right? Cause you know, and now I'm the parent to my parents, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. So it's full cycle. And now you definitely have motivation to, to, to learn about that. I, I won't be surprised if I, if I see some, some company in your portfolio with something about dementia or whatever. Um, what, what are some things you learned you've learned in, I guess in the, the recent weeks or months or whatever, however long you've been kind of digging into the dementia stuff. Um, we've been looking at like in a sense, like some of the kind of brain training and work. And then I've been looking into like, um, I just was at a conference at Stanford on all the latest neuroscience uh, research. Uh, from that. So you have the ones in really like how we keep our, our mind and our brain going, how we're feeding our brain, not only from a nutrition sleep standpoint, right? Like as I was mentioning yeah. before, how, what you, the fuel you feed, it actually affects its performance, but how you sleep and reset it um, from that, but also how you keep it very active. Right. So they really encourage you to learn new skills, talk to new people, do new things. Right. Because you're creating those kind of circuits in your brain. Um, so it's a lot of interesting brain training um, from that. Then there's been interesting kind of where you start getting into the emerging technology is like areas of kind of the brain that you can kind of stimulate. Right. Yeah. With like, you know, from ultrasound to electricity <laughs> to experiences in VR to like, right? Like you're, you're emerging uh, kind of your brain from that standpoint too, as well. So I think there, there's going to, and I think we're just touching the surface on the power of our brain and where it's going and how, um, how we can help it from that standpoint. So. Yeah. Cause have you seen that documentary? It's on YouTube. It's called alive inside. And it's this, uh, they put this 
it's back in the iPod days, and they, they brought these iPods to, to these um, I don't know, hospitals or whatever they are, and the the dementia patients would, would listen to the music from their from their youth or from their pre dementia days, and then suddenly their faces would light up. They would start talking, and all their memories would be coming out. I'm thinking, wow, this is such a, like a touching, amazing thing, and that's just music. I mean. With all these new technologies that are coming out that can tap into the brain in all kinds of new ways, um, there's there's a there's a bit of hope. Um, yeah, nutrition, but even I mean, yeah, you're talking about VR, these, uh, uh, TMS, all kinds of things that don't exist yet. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, if it, like um, David Eagleman, who's one of our luminaries, he's uh, he's a neuroscientist and author. Um, he has a PBS special and a podcast really talking about um, the brain and um, devices and sensory and where he's going. Amazing. I just love um, listening and learning from him. Uh, he makes it so accessible um, from that standpoint, you know, because I definitely hit into a lot of neuroscience where like, yes, and we slice the, the rat's brain to understand the neuros. And I'm like, you know, for me as like an animal lover, I'm like, there's Oh, they're just like, you know, or where they leave the brain exposed in, in, in animals. I'm just like, oh, part of me, just like my heart going out to the animal uh, from that standpoint. But he really, really talks about kind of the neuroscience, um, the brain where it's going from that aspect. I'm uh, kind of from this, from this brain podcast too. So it's been wonderful to kind of see and inspired by his work as well. Yeah. When you could find when these, when these people who know their stuff know how to communicate as well, I'm like, oh, yes. I mean, it's no surprise like Andrew Huberman has become so popular because he's just, he's passionate about it. Um, he knows his stuff and he just explains things in a perfect way. Um, and then uh, what, what's the guy's name you just mentioned? I want to, I want to check that one out. Oh yeah. Dave, David Eagleman. David Eagleman. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, he sounds great. If if technology is technology kind of your main main thing, I, I guess I guess as an investor, that's that's what people invest in, right? You don't invest in food or um, <laughs> what 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 are some technologies that don't exist yet or that are developing? Um, there's AI, there's uh, VR, there's all this Web three stuff. There's other things that you know about. Um, what are some things that you're like, mm, it's not quite there yet, but in five years and ten years, ooh. This is very exciting. Something that kind of excites you, but you're you're kind of waiting for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, definitely. You know, a lot of us have been looking at that Gen AI, um, but then when you start adding quantum computing on top of that, where it really allows you to exercise all you know all that data in a more efficient way, it's 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 very exciting because. What my hopes is like, yeah, there's so much technology and shiny objects out there, but what my hopes is what it does. And I want it to actually go into, you know, personalized precision medicine. So rather than um, a drug or a therapy, just to say, okay, for me, Faye, right? It t just basically says, you know, female, adult. Yeah. Doesn't say like, weight, age, preferences, to your point, right? Like what I, what works for me, not like I'm actually very sensitive to drugs. It doesn't take that. So then you're just going through these litany of treatments and, and so sad to talk, you know, we do a lot of, um, we have like a youth ambassador group too, and our luminary network of over 50 people. And you'll hear stories of like, I tried 20 different treatments, 30 different, I talked to so many, you know, like it doesn't work for me. But if we really know you, your, and what's happening with you and your preferences, Michael, as you were saying, then we can hone into a treatment that will work for you, a therapy that's guided for you, yeah. rather than you having this trial and error of like, here's the list and just go down in this order, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm excited about using the data, your personalization, your preferences, what works and doesn't work and then really having that have the most effective. So it doesn't take 11 years from the onset of your symptoms to find the most effective way to address it. 
and those aren't just those aren't just any eleven years. Those are the eleven years of where your your brain is still um, really developing. Those these highly myelination years. These these years that are going to basically forming the brain that you're you're basically going to have the rest of your life um, for better or worse. So those are critical years to to not just let those things go unnoticed. Yeah. Exactly. You ch- you change your trajectory of someone's life, right? Yeah. And their potential and what they can do and how they feel about themselves. And, you know, um, so I, I think it's so critical. Um, you know, the earlier we address it, uh, the better. There's been really interesting assessment tools too, right? Um, you know, rather than these paper tests, right? <laughs> like, oh my God, how are you doing? Where And uh, really looking at like your voice, being able to, you know, say, how are you doing by your voice? You were mentioning your eyes, um, your blood tests, saliva, your breath. Um, you know, we were looking at some devices that are on your phone that are a little attachment on your phone that actually can do like a breath analysis to say, wow, your anxiety level based on, you know, what we see in the chemicals in your breath is like very high right now. You know, do you want to take a pause? Like, could you, want to, you know, from that? Um, when I was at Kaiser heading up our um, innovation lab and innovation fund there, there were some really interesting things that you kind of wouldn't think of. Like we were, we were kind of talking with car manufacturers of like, because what was happening is people would have heart attacks on the road or doze off on the road or, you know, like have um, serious incidents and healthcare incidents. And we're like, how about if you made a really smart car that really understood the driver and the health and well-being, right? Like if they're, if you have in the rear view mirror, you're watching your eyes too, and you're starting to doze off, take the car to the side of the road. Yeah. If your hands are on the steering wheel and now we can tell your heart rate, and it looks like you're nearing a heart attack or a stroke or, you know, like things like that. Can we safely get you off the road? Right. Like, or can we get you to the nearest ER and now patch in your doctor? Cause now your smartphone's tied to your car and it's just saying, Hey, it looks like, you know, your heart rate's over this rate. You're you know, like we really think it's a serious concern. Can we call your doctor? Here's the nearest ER. We're going to get you towards it. You know, like, you know, I think it's really interesting uh, from that standpoint. So, I think I think it's also why I I asked this kind of vague question earlier. I, I wasn't really sure where it was, but now I figured it out. I, t- I was mentioning these sensors and this biofeedback. We we can use this um, information, the eye, eye tracking and, and breath tracking, and uh, I, I know we have these continuous glucose monitors and all kinds of smart watches and things. But we put all that data together, and we kind of we sort of trust it. I mean, we trust it, especially we build a relationship with that data and we're like, okay, well it says I'm going to have a heart attack. I mean, I've been building this relationship with this, these devices for the past three or four years, I guess it's right. Um, and it's, it's about me. So we want to know about health, but we, everyone's health is different and everyone reacts differently to different things. So when you're like, Oh, I understand my health. That's very motivating. I think everyone's motivated to learn about their own their own body, their own system. And then plus when they have technology that's telling them not about, you know, it's like a textbook or something or some recommendation on YouTube or whatever. It's about you, only you. Um, well, that you, you, you trust that more, um, especially as you use it more and more and you realize, hmm, actually these correlations, um, these things it's saying uh, kind of line up with my psychology and my how I feel. So that's, um, that's game-changing. Yeah. Yeah. And and also to show your progress, right? Yeah. Like you might be working on something in, in your house, but at, to, you know, like, right. It might be your anxiety or your fear of going out and it's kind of tracking your progress. And you might find that like, you know, from that, like, Faye, I know, you know, your goal is to go out once a week. We know like just historically, like from your journal items, your, your heart rate, everything Sundays is your hardest day, right? So maybe let's just have that goal and you're going to go out on Mondays, right? Like build yourself up, you know, like, yeah, you know, try and then, you know, tackle that hardest day so that they kind of know you. They um, are close to seeing kind of your habits. Um, They know when your anxiety peaks from that and kind of building you up rather than saying, okay, you have to go, (laughs) 
you just have to go and then you, you try and do it on Sunday and you fail, right? Um, from that standpoint, but kind of really kind of supporting you all along the way, that nudge. Um, and we do invest in, you know, technology companies and platforms, but we really think people's an important part. So we also look at ways to, that, you know, when you need a person, they're there, right? So they're, they're peer groups, there's professionals, um, there's ways for escalation patterns, there's, you know, someone behind the technology that they could talk to as well. Um, so. Yeah. Um, every time you, you say something, I have these ideas. I'm like, I want to keep going. Like I want to, it's like we're playing a little game of basketball, like a, like a really chill game of basketball, not a serious one. We're just kind of tossing the ball back and forth, kind of kicking it around. And I'm like, eh, can we play a little bit longer? Um, but uh, I think, I think you got things to do. So we'll maybe continue this another day. <laughs> Yes. No, it's been wonderful talking with you. Yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm glad that I can, um, I can feel comfortable talking to you already after the first time. Um, and I might re-listen to this. I might be like, whoo. No, I, I think, I, I, I think it was, I think it was good. Um, I, I just got swept away in the conversation. I wasn't trying to be like, uh, let's try to make it sound cool. I, sometimes I did that, but I, 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 overall I don't like that anyway. So this is fun for me. Um, if people want to, learn more about you or connect or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Where should they go? Or, or if they have a company and they want to, like, I want to, I want to uh, apply for this. I want to show them what I got, you know, anyone around the world, any gender, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Anyone. Yeah. Um, we're currently investing in the U S and Canada. Sorry guys. Um, also um, we're working. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but um, investors like, so we're raising our new fund right now. So if they're investors interested um, and investing in this area. We also co-invest um, with, with others as well uh, from that standpoint, but are kind of interested on our website, um, yeah, Telocity, T-E-L-O-S-I-T-Y.co. You know, we actually have a way that you can gauge whether you're a startup, an investor, you're interested, um, an expert in this area, uh, you, you know, you're a young person that's really interested. Um, we're engaging with people through that way. So, um, yeah, feel free or LinkedIn from that as, as well. Um, feel free to reach out. Okay. Uh, I'm a typical me, typical Mike. I got one bonus question. Um, what kind of advice would you have for someone who wants to um, create a, a mental health technology startup, um, whether they're um, going through you or they're going some other path? What are some like, this is my advice for you. Ah, oh, I, I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, we actually created a whole market guide because hmm. we actually want more investors and more um, innovators and startups in this area. Um, and so we actually created a market guide that's over 80 pages <laughs> from, <laughs> from that just to talk about like really understanding your market because it is a complex market, right? Yeah. Healthcare is highly regulatory uh, from that standpoint really understanding your, your market, the problem you're tackling, the evidence behind it, um, you know, kind of thoughts on how to regulate who, who's going to buy the product, how are you going to bring it to market? So we actually give, uh, you know, 80 plus pages worth of um, guidance uh, on our website from that. And, um, you know, when we first put it together, um, there was really for startup entrepreneurs and investors and then we got 150 million unearned media impressions. <laughs> so we know people are passionate about it. Um, so it's, it's, it's been amazing from that standpoint and um, available right there from there um, as yeah. well. And you'll see some other resources. We've done national surveys and polls about what people need and want as well. But um, yeah on our website under the market guide and resource. Yeah. I, I, I just pulled up. There's all kinds of stuff on your website. This one's uh Telocity.co slash MKT hyphen guide. Exactly. Wow. Wow. What a, what an interesting podcast. People get to listen to me speak hyphens and slashes and stuff. Now I'll, I'll, I'll link this and the LinkedIn and um, the website and everything. I think basically the websites, everything's there. Um, I'll put, I'll put that in the notes and everything. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, thank you so much. Good luck with your talk later today. And I hope to stay in touch. Yes, I hope to, too, as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye.